Good morning. Good morning. All right. Uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys. See some new faces. Excited to see some new faces. And uh, just excited to be here with you all um, to see what God has for us. So uh, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke for some time now. I actually uh, looked it up. We began back in April of 2021, and so we are almost two years into this study, and I kind of felt bad, but then I kind of felt, you know what, I don't feel bad. Um, it's the biggest of the Gospels uh, of the four, and uh, you know, God's faithful just to speak as we go verse by verse, so it is what it is. Uh, we are drawing close to the end. Lately, we've been uh, spending, we spent about the last three months now reading and studying about what happened during Jesus's final week leading up to the cross. And today we're going to look at events that transpired the night before he would be sentenced and crucified, taking our place and paying our debt upon the cross of Calvary. And so our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 53, and the title of our study is going to be The Father's Will, okay? The Father's Will. I'd like to invite you all to rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to read our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, that's fine. just want to encourage you to do your best to follow along. And so Luke continues his account of what took place that final night prior to Jesus going to the cross for us, with the following in verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness." Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity that we have to open up your word and allow your word to speak to us, Lord, to minister to us, to lead and guide us, Lord. I pray that we would just be open to all that your spirit desires to speak to us today, that we would be attentive and uh, just receptive uh, of the work your spirit desires to do. And so, 
Lord, we give you this service, we give you this time of study, asking just for you to work in and through it, and we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So our account this morning picks up right where we left off last week. I'll recall, if you will, that last week we looked at some of the events that took place while Jesus was up in the upper room with his disciples. They had met in the upper room to participate in the Passover feast, and it was there where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, taking the elements of the Passover feast and giving to them new meaning, taking the bread and identifying it with his body and the cup and identifying it with his blood, which would be shed for the remission of sins. During the meal, Jesus also dropped a bombshell upon the disciples, indicating that one of the twelve of them was going to betray him. And at first, the disciples seemed to respond in humility, asking the Lord if it could be them. But then they turned to each other, and they started questioning each other and who it could be that would betray the Lord. And this quickly escalated into an argument about greatness between the disciples And so Jesus took the time to once again instruct his disciples about greatness and how it is completely contrary to the way the world looks at and perceives greatness. You see, greatness in God's kingdom is about serving Christ and it's about serving others. It's about becoming the least of all, about being faithful and humble and prepared for anything God may bring our way ultimately trusting in the work that Christ has done and continues to do in our lives. Well, after addressing the disciples about greatness, we read of how Jesus warned the disciples and Peter specifically about how the enemy was seeking opportunity to sift them. Uh, Simon Peter, in a very prideful and boastful proclamation, uh, very typical Peter, right? One that was very uh, quick to open his mouth. Um, and he very boldly proclaimed that he was ready to go to prison and even death in order to follow Christ. And it was then Jesus dropped another bombshell indicating that Peter himself would deny even knowing the Lord three times before the night was through. We ended last week with Jesus warning the disciples about how things were about to change, where once Jesus and his disciples were gladly accepted and welcomed, they would now start to be seen as criminals and troublemakers. They would need to be prepared for the persecution that would come after his departure. And the disciples responded to Jesus saying that they had two swords at the ready. And we read about how Jesus simply said, it is enough. The time had come. Jesus was done speaking to his disciples about these things. It was time for him to make his way out of the upper room and out to the Mount of Olives where he knew exactly what awaited him. Let's take a look at our opening verses again to set the scene for what took place that night after their time in the upper room. Read verses 39 and 40 with me again. It says, coming out, speaking of the upper room, so they're exiting the upper room. He went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Our text picks up with Jesus and his disciples exiting the upper room, making their way to the Mount of Olives as was part of their custom. John's gospel tells us specifically that Jesus and his disciples exited the upper room and crossed over the brook Kidron. They're just east of the temple where there was a garden. 
The name Kidron is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Kidron, and it means very black or full of darkness. Matthew's gospel, as well as Mark's, tells us the name of this particular garden that they went to. In Matthew 26, we are told that the name of the garden was the Garden of Gethsemane. The name Gethsemane is an Aramaic word that um, comes from the combination of the words geth, which means press, and shemen, which means oil. And together, the word Gethsemane speaks of an oil press. And so it would seem, based upon the name of this garden, that this was a place where olives were collected and they were pressed for their oil. And this makes sense, seeing as how it was located at the base of the Mount of Olives. And so the names of these places, they're quite telling of what is going on. As Jesus makes his way out of the upper room, he is going to encounter great darkness and an incredible amount of pressing as he looks to fulfill God's will for him as the Savior of the world. Now, this Garden of Gethsemane was a place that Jesus and his disciples frequented. In fact, John's gospel tells us that Judas knew the place as well, and that he knew that he would be able to find Jesus there, lead the religious authorities there, because it was a place that they often went to. Now, the events that are depicted in this garden are very significant, especially in consideration to other gardens that are mentioned in the Bible and the events that took place there. For it was in the Garden of Eden where the first man, Adam, rebelled against the Lord, and he brought sin and death into this world. And it will be at the garden tomb where the last Adam, Jesus Christ, will rise victoriously, defeating death and granting eternal life to all who would put their faith in him and his resurrection. But before Jesus can taste of the victory of the garden tomb, he first must go through the suffering and the pressing of the garden of Gethsemane. It is here in this place where he will experience great agony and anguish, sufferings that we cannot even begin to fathom. As Jesus arrived there in the garden, we're told that he said to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. In fact, he'll say this a couple of times, for at the end of verse 46, if you look down, you'll see Jesus again exhorts his disciples to pray lest they enter into temptation. You know, we often think of prayer as talking to God about the things that we need or the things that we want, but there, here we see that there is a whole other side of prayer praying for things we don't need and things that we don't want. The verb prayers or pray, it is written in the imperative form, which means it is a command. The Lord's commanding his disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation. You see, Jesus knew what lied ahead for them. He knew what he would be facing and he knew what they would soon face as well. What temptation would they face? Well, the temptation to run and hide, the temptation to desert Jesus, the temptation to deny their Lord, the temptation they would face after his death when they would be tempted to believe that they had been deserted by Jesus or worse yet, even deceived into thinking Jesus was someone other than their Messiah. Now the word temptation, it comes from the root word to make trial or to test these men's faiths were about to be tested. Okay? How would they respond to seeing their Lord arrested, bound, spit upon, 
mocked, beaten, bruised, and ultimately crucified upon a Roman cross. They needed to pray and ask God to protect them from the temptation, to prepare them for what was to come. They would need all the strength and faith the Lord could pour into them to make it through these trials, these testings. You know, when we are facing our own great trials and great difficulties, our own temptation to perhaps run and hide or to abandon our faith, God is able to give us what we need to make it through to the other side. God brings his people through adversity and affliction in order to encourage and to prove our faith and our confidence in him. Paul assures us that God will make a way for us if we will seek him and pray. He will reveal that way of escape that we may be able to bear it, that we may be able to endure temptation. It reads in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That word bear it can also be translated as endure it. Okay? God is faithful. He will provide a way to escape, a way to endure, a way to persevere and come out the other side stronger and more mature, ready for even greater challenges but we first must go to Him. Okay? We must seek Him. We must pray. Jesus knew this, and that is why He exhorts His disciples to pray. You know, as we consider the topic of the Father's will, we know that it is God's will for our lives that we be a people of prayer. Okay? A lot of people want to know what God's will is for their lives. And they think, I don't know what God's will is for my life. Well, there's scripture that we can go to that tells us exactly, 100% confidence, this is God's will for your life. And one of those things is that we would be a people of prayer. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You want to know what Christ... Jesus' will for you is it's that you rejoice always, that you'd pray without ceasing, and that you would give thanks for everything. <laughs> That's God's will for your life. Okay? It is God's will for us that we pray without ceasing, that we be in constant communion with the Lord, constantly aware of His presence and engaging with Him throughout the day. And that should be part of our everyday, but especially as we face temptation and trials, knowing that it is through prayer that we will be able to hear from the Lord and know the way to escape and endure whatever it is God allows to come our way. Well, let's read what happened after this in verses 41 and 42. It says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, he withdrew from the rest of the disciples about a stone's throw away, we're told, and he knelt in prayer before the Father. The other gospel writers, they let us know that Jesus actually took with him James, John, and Peter, and that he began to tell them of the great distress that he was feeling and how he wanted them to watch and to pray for him. 
Mark's gospel reads, and he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. That idea, uh, sense behind that idea of the word watch was to watch and pray. Jesus is saying, hey, I am not doing great right now. Will you please pray for me? Watch for me. As I go and pray, I want you to be praying for me. And after requesting these three to pray for him, he separated from them and he went to be alone with the Lord. And he prayed to his father asking that if it were his will to take this cup away from him. Now the cup that he spoke of was the cup of suffering that he was about to partake of. And most of us are probably familiar with the account. We know about the physical suffering that Jesus is about to endure, right? Punches to his blindfolded face, scourging across his entire bare back, the nails that would be driven through his flesh and impaled upon a wooden cross, the crown of thorns that would be twisted upon his head. His body would be bloodied from head to toe. And yet, I submit to you that this was not what concerned him most of all. The physical suffering was one thing, but the emotional and more importantly, the spiritual suffering of being made into sin for us, of being separated from the fellowship of his father was what I believe he feared even more. He knew that the wrath of the Father was about to be poured out upon him for the sin of all humanity. The scriptures speak about how God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was about to become sin for us. Seemingly forsaken by the Father, Jesus will cry out upon the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? This sense of feeling forsaken by the Father, of having the wrath of His Father poured out upon Him, of being judged by His Father, this is what I believe caused Jesus the most distress, the most pain and anguish as He went to His Father in prayer. And yet, as He prayed, asking the Father to take away the cup, We see that ultimately Jesus was more concerned with fulfilling God's will, not his own. Jesus prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was fully submitted and yielded to his Father's will. And we must always remember that prayer is not about getting our will done, but about getting us in line with His will for us, right? We are to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? We want to have God's will done. That's what prayer is about. It's about getting God's will done, not our will done. Jesus was submitted to whatever the Father wanted. He let, go, let God know what He wanted, what His request was, but He submitted, whatever the, submitted to whatever the Father saw fit. You know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, suggesting something to the Lord, you know, in prayer. I do that from time to time. Lord, you know, this is what I think you should do. Um, you know, so we go to the Lord in prayer, and God, it'd be really great if you do this, or Lord, it'd be really great if you do that. 
right? And, and those kind of prayers are okay. I don't want to discourage you in your prayer life, okay? There's nothing wrong with those kinds of prayers as long as we submit those requests under the condition of, if that be your will. God, this would be wonderful and great. I could see how it all would work together, you know? But your will, not mine. I'm submitted to whatever you want, God. And I'm going to let you in on a little something I've discovered over and over again throughout my years. God knows what's best for me. <laughs> and God knows what's best for you as well. Okay? And oftentimes, God doesn't answer my prayers in the manner in which I suggest. And for that, I've learned to become ever so thankful. <laughs> eternally grateful for how he works in ways that are far above my own ways, far better than what I could have ever imagined. When we pray for and submit to God's will, we show our trust in God's decision for what is best for us, not our own decisions. It may not always be the easiest, and it may not always be what we want, but we can be confident that it will always be what is best. Let's continue in our text. We'll see what else took place here in verses 43 and 44. It says, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We'll pause right there. After Jesus prayed for his Father's will to be done, we see that the Father sent an angel to strengthen Jesus for the task at hand. The appearance of this angel must have been seen as a sort of answer to Jesus' request. The Lord would not grant his request, but instead sent an angel to strengthen him for the mission that lied ahead. In my studies, I came across a quote that read this way. It says, every life has its Gethsemane, and every Gethsemane has its angel. We will experience trials. Okay, we will go through difficulties, persecutions, setbacks, and a whole host of other experiences we really don't want to have. We're all going to have our Gethsemanes, okay? But with each of the, those experiences, God will be there to supply what is needed to make it through to the other side. Maybe it will be uh, an angel God sends to minister to you. Okay, maybe it'll be just a fresh filling of his spirit. Maybe it'll be a word fitly spoken by a friend. Maybe a study that you hear as you come and listen uh, to a service at church or you listen to a podcast. Maybe it'll be the prayers of a saint that you look up to. Maybe it'll be the, just the presence of a loved one that's there to encourage and comfort you or the encouragement of a brother or sister who's been there and gone through what you're going through. Whatever it is, God will provide what is needed to see us through. That angel will take many forms, okay? That provision from the Lord, okay? Luke tells us that after the angel appeared, Jesus began to pray even more earnestly with great fervency because of the agony that he was feeling. In fact, he was under such duress from the agony of fulfilling the Father's will that Luke, who we know was a physician, so this is Dr. Luke, he tells us that Jesus' sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus was so overwhelmed that he seemingly began to sweat drops of blood. And some of you may be thinking, well, that must be written 
allegorically or, you know, symbolically. But listen, Dr. Luke does not use any such form of writing in his recording of this incident. Sweating, or at least appearing to sweat drops of blood, is a real and a rare, very rare medical condition. It's called, I'm going to get it right, hematohydrosis. It's, uh, you can look it up, uh, hematodrosis or hematohydrosis, uh, they're both words are used. According to the National Library of Medicine, it is a condition in which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood occurring under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. Jesus prayed with great fervency, with great passion, with great intensity. And it was through this powerful time of prayer where I believe the victory was won. Okay? This time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, I believe, was the turning point in the battle for our souls. And I don't mean to belittle the cross or the work of the cross at all. Okay, the cross is glorious and it's wonderful. But the reason Christ was able and willing to lay down his life upon the cross was, I believe, because of the power that he obtained this night through prayer. From this moment on, Jesus is completely committed to the Father's will. There would be no stopping him, no room for the flesh to work. As we see his actions from here forth, where he is arrested, where he is brought before the religious authorities, and he is sentenced, and he is brought before Pontius Pilate, and he is beaten, and he is whipped, you do not see any doubt whatsoever in him. He is committed all the way from this night forward. The sorrow and great distress he began this night with will be replaced with a yielded and steadfast spirit that has been prepared and strengthened by the Father to complete the mission before him. You guys, and I I believe that God desires to do similarly in our own lives, that we may know the power that comes through an intimate prayer life with the Lord that we would walk in the strength that God provides through prayer and that we would fulfill His will for our own lives and the strength of His Spirit inside of us. Well, let's continue on. Take a look at what happened uh, after Jesus finished praying in verses 45 and 46. It says, When He rose up from prayer and had come to His disciples, He found them sleeping from sorrow. And then He said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Jesus had asked his disciples to pray, but when he returned, he found them sleeping instead, sleeping from sorrow. And this wasn't just a one-time thing. According to the other gospel accounts, this happened three times, where Jesus separated himself to pray, only to come back and find his disciples sleeping each time that he went away to pray and when he came back to them. They were sleeping from sorrow. The word sorrow carries the sense of a state of mental pain and anxiety. Jesus' disciples were still trying to process all that was going on. Jesus, earlier in the night, had reiterated to them while in the upper room how he must go away, how he was going to be handed over, how he was going to be lifted up, and he told them about how he must die. 
and the disciples were emotionally drained with great sorrow. They couldn't keep their eyes open and they couldn't keep the watch and pray as Jesus asked them to. The disciples were sleeping instead of praying. And this would lead to their eventual undoing. For we know that all of Jesus' disciples forsook him and fled after his arrest in the garden. Mark chapter 14, verse 50 tells us that. Jesus questioned them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. You see, the answer to not falling into temptation was to pray. Jesus had just experienced God strengthening him, empowering him, and he knew that the disciples needed that same power, but they were too busy sleeping. And they failed to receive that same power that was made available to Jesus unto themselves. Let's carry on in our text. Read what happened immediately after these uh, events. Verse 47, it says, And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? We'll stop right there. While Jesus was still speaking, a multitude came before them. Now, just how big of a multitude, you may be wondering. Well, it's more than what you probably are imagining, okay? John's gospel tells us that Judas had received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Okay, and if you look up that word detachment, it speaks of a Roman cohort, okay, and a cohort numbered around 600 soldiers, okay, it was one-tenth of a legion, which would be around 6,000 soldiers, and so this multitude numbered in the hundreds that came out against Jesus and his disciples, Hundreds of soldiers and religious authorities, along with their servants, surrounded Jesus and his 11 disciples. It was at least 50 to 1 in regard to the opposition. And John's gospel also mentions that they came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Matthew and Mark's gospels say that they came with clubs and swords. Of course, the one leading this multitude was none other than Judas Iscariot one of Jesus' own twelve who had walked with him throughout his earthly ministry. As Judas drew near the group, he approached Jesus in order to kiss him. And we're told in the other Gospels that this was the sign Judas was going to give to the religious authorities so that they would know which one they were to seize and arrest. Remember that this would be in the middle of the night. And even though they saw Jesus many times before, it would be challenging to properly identify Jesus in the darkness of night. Now, this kiss wouldn't be seen as abnormal or weird at all. It was common in those days and customary to greet one another with a kiss, especially for a disciple or a pupil uh, to kiss their rabbi or teacher. It was a sign of affection and respect and closeness, something I imagine Judas had done many times before in greeting Jesus. But sadly, we know that this was all a masquerade. Okay? Judas was only pretending to be affectionate and respectful with Jesus. He did not truly care for him. He did not respect him. We already know that he had churned against Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 
And as Judas approached him, Jesus said to him, Judas, he asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, I do not believe that Jesus was asking this question for his own knowledge's sake. Okay? I am quite certain that Jesus was fully aware of Judas's plan and what was happening. Okay, And so if the question was not for Jesus, then we must assume that it was meant for Judas. Jesus knew what Judas was doing, but by asking Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? I believe it was Jesus' way of giving, giving Judas one last opportunity to think through what he was doing and to possibly repent. It was as if Jesus was asking Judas, are you sure this is what you want to do? Okay. Are you sure this is how you want this to go down, Judas? Okay. You're going to betray me with, with a kiss? Okay. That that's how you want it? And unfortunately, that is what Judas chose. For Judas did not repent. He continued forth with the plan, kissing Jesus. And according to Mark's gospel, as soon as Judas kissed Jesus, the religious authorities immediately laid their hands on Jesus and took him. And that made things get very interesting. Read what happened next in verses 49 through 51. It says, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. When his disciples saw what was going on, how they had seized Jesus, they asked, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Remember last week's message? Jesus in telling his disciples about the changing atmosphere and how things were going to get more challenging for them as followers of Jesus Christ. He instructed them to sell their garments if they didn't have a sword so that they might buy a sword. Remember? And when Jesus was done instructing them, they said to Jesus, look, Lord, here are two swords, right? We got two swords, and, and he says, it is enough. And the disciples wanted to know if it was time to pull out their two swords. Now, again, imagine the scene with me. Okay? I, I like to often paint the picture in my own mind's eye to imagine what it was like. There are hundreds of soldiers there, okay? They are outnumbered at least 50 to 1. Several of the people that came out against them are armed with sword and clubs, and the 11 disciples had two swords amongst the 11 of them. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Really? Really? I mean, what was going through their minds right now? Okay? Did they really think this was the time to pull out their two swords? You know, on one hand, I admire their courage. I'm like, wow, you know, that's, that's pretty bold, right? But on the other hand, I just question their, their logic, their, their state of mind in this situation. Jesus had told them repeatedly that this was going to happen. This was part of God's will. It was part of God's plan for the kingdom. And they just did not get it whatsoever. Well, our text tells us that one of the disciples didn't wait around for an answer from Jesus, and he pulled out one of the two swords, and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, these guys were not traditional swordsmen. Most of them were fishermen, and so I don't think he was 
aiming for his right ear, okay? Um, Malchus was a very fast uh, dodger or a very lucky man, okay? Now, I'm going to give you one guess as to who that one disciple was that didn't wait for the Lord but just pushed ahead with his own plans. Any ideas who that may have been? Yeah, Peter. Yep, it's Peter. The, you know, act now, think later kind of Peter, right? John's gospel identifies Peter as the unnamed swordsman here in our account, John 18, verse 10. John also tells us the name of the servant of the high priest who had his ear cut off. His name was Malchus. You know, Peter is one that has gotten himself into some precarious situations by not properly thinking things through, and this is no exception. Peter no doubt believed he was doing the right thing. Perhaps he was even considering his earlier vehement declaration of faith that he was willing to go to prison and to die for Jesus. Peter was ready to take on the whole detachment of troops should he have to. Peter didn't wait for the Lord to respond and direct him, but rather impulsively reacted without waiting for instruction. Listen, we can't do that. We cannot act in that kind of way. We need to wait upon the Lord for Him to lead and guide us before we make rash decisions and take swift action. Peter ran ahead of the Lord instead of waiting on the Lord. He took matters into his own hands. He rushed ahead of the Lord and trusted in his own flesh to save the day. And what resulted from it was a big old mess that Jesus needed to clean up. Peter was fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapon. You see, our enemies are not flesh and blood, and they cannot be defeated with ordinary physical weapons. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 reads, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Ephesians 6 reads, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, the sword that we wield is not physical, but spiritual. It is the sword of the Spirit. It is the Word of God. The author of Hebrews writes, For the Word of God is living and powerful and is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Peter was bringing a physical sword into a battle that was spiritual in nature. He needed a spiritual weapon. He was fighting a physical foe when the enemy was spiritual as well. Not only was Peter fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapon, but he also did so at the wrong time and with the wrong attitude. The time to engage in the battle was before when Jesus had called him to pray. When he said, Pray, lest you enter into temptation. And then when he called them after sleeping, he said, Rise, pray, lest you enter into temptation. That was the time to engage in the battle. That is when the battle was being fought. And that's when Peter needed to step up and enter into the fight on his knees in prayer. But that time had passed. It was not the right time for Peter to act this way. And his attitude was all wrong as well. Jesus' attitude was one of surrender and submission to the Father's will. But Peter was fighting and declaring war against the will of God. You know, as we engage in the spiritual battle around us, may we be mindful of Peter's actions and ensure we don't follow in his footsteps. 
We want to make sure that we are fighting the right enemy, that we are using our spiritual weapon appropriately, being led by the Lord in the right timing and having the right attitude when doing so. Listen, church family, do not be so quick to unsheathe your sword and start hacking away. Remember that the sword that we wield is a powerful one. It is sharp. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can cause a lot of harm if not used properly. You know, there are a number of well-meaning Christians who have looked to engage in the spiritual battle and have only done what Peter has done in creating a bigger mess for Jesus to clean up. Let's be sensitive to the Lord's leading Let's use the sword of the Spirit more like a surgeon's blade, delicately cutting away that which is not healthy. Instead of using our Bibles as a big old axe we use to hack away at something or worse yet, someone. As we wield the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, may it be with the wisdom of the Lord, the wisdom that is from above, and may it be in love. James says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. And we need to ask ourselves, before wielding our sword of the Spirit and sharing the word with other people, hey, is what we're going to share, is it pure? Is it peaceable? Is it gentle? Is it merciful? And will it bring about the kind of fruit God is looking for? Is it being shared without partiality and without hypocrisy? You know, if we can answer yes to those questions, then we can, you know, move forward understanding that we are operating in the wisdom that is from above, trusting that God is leading and guiding us. And as we share that truth, we must always make sure that our attitude is one of love. May love be our motivating factor in sharing the Word of God with others. Listen, you guys, it isn't about winning an argument. It is about winning souls for the kingdom of God. Too many of us are more concerned with winning an argument, and we end up losing an opportunity to see souls won for the kingdom. Okay? Despite the fact that Peter hacked off Malchus's ear, Jesus was there to clean up Peter's mess He's there to clean up our messes as well. Praise the Lord for that. He stopped things from escalating any further, simply declaring, permit even this. He touched Malchus's ear and instantly healed him on the spot. We don't have any other record of what happened to Malchus. I kind of wonder, you know, did he continue to be uh, the servant of the high priest and what God did in his life? But we have no record of or account of it. Let's wrap this teaching up. Look at the final verses of our text with me, verses 52 and 53. It says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus addressed the multitude that had come out to him, and he questioned their actions, their motives. They had plenty of uh, other opportunities to act before, but they never did so. And now they come in the cover uh, of night in the dark. And Jesus states that this was their hour. 
and the power of darkness. Jesus knew and he realized that this was all part of something greater that God was working out. This was all part of God's plan and God's will. Jesus was operating upon a divine timeline and the time had come for his betrayal. The time had come for him to be seized and the time had come for him to ultimately be taken to the cross for our sins. You know, as we consider this portion of Scripture and what it has to do with the Father's will, I see really a choice for us to make or perhaps a way for us to potentially identify with others. I think we can be one of four people from this text. I think at times we can be like the disciples and we can find ourselves sleeping when we ought to be praying when it comes to God's will for our lives. How many of us are actively seeking God's will? How many of us are spending time in prayer, seeking the Father and asking Him to reveal His plan, to reveal His will? How many of us are actively listening and waiting upon the Lord, getting into His Word and allowing it to speak to us? Are we doing those things? Or are we more like the disciples and we're sleeping on the job? We're sleeping when we ought to be praying. You know, we could be like Judas and we can simply be going through the motions and pretending to be concerned about the Lord and His will for our lives. Judas pretended affection and masqueraded as a disciple of Jesus Christ for several years, but never surrendered his life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You know, I hope that we do not have any phonies in here that are simply pretending and playing a part. But if there are, I pray that you would repent and that you would get right with the Lord today. That you would seize the opportunity presented today to come to Him and to begin a new relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know, we can also play the part of Peter. And we could be those who are fighting against God's will. Peter was well-intentioned. I I believe Peter's heart was in the right place, you know. He wanted to stand for the Lord. He loved the Lord. But he simply was out of balance. He should have been praying, but instead he was sleeping. And when he should have been yielded, instead he was fighting. Sometimes we can be our worst enemies, fighting against what God is wanting to do in our lives. God has spoken to you. God has shown you. He's revealed certain things to you. And you're like, I don't know if I want that, God. You know, I I think I'd rather do this, God. And God's saying, no, that's not my plan for you. That's not my will for you. And yet we fight against the Lord. We fight against God's will in our lives. Fearful of what it may lead us to, uncertain, whatever it is, we, we resist it and we fight against it. It's time that we stop fighting against the Lord and His will for our lives. It's time that we yield our lives completely over to God and His will for us. And that brings me to our fourth person, Jesus Christ. Jesus was engaged in God's will and was fully and completely yielded to God's will, submitted to whatever the Father's will was because He knew and He understood that the Father knew best and that His plans were were for the best. And we can have that same confidence and that same assurance in our own walk with the Lord and in our calling and what God has for each and every one of us. That whatever it is He is calling to you, 
no matter how difficult it may seem or how challenging it may be, it is for our best. And we need to yield to the Lord in His will and stop fighting. May we be like Jesus. May we be fully yielded and submitted to the Father in His will for our lives. May we be active in our walk with the Lord and may we find the strength needed to fulfill His will through God's Spirit inside of us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the example of your Son, Jesus Christ. As he went through great difficulty, great agony, Lord, uh, he knew what laid ahead of him, Lord, and yet he was fully surrendered and submitted to your will. Lord, what an incredible example he is for us. I pray that by your strength, Lord, and by your Spirit, we may be able to follow in his footsteps that we would be completely, fully yielded to your will and your desire for us. Lord, that we would get out of the way, that we would stop fighting against your will, that we would finally just surrender completely to you. Lord, that if there are any here who identify as a Peter that's been fighting, I pray that they would realize the time to surrender. Lord, I pray if there's any here that identify with Judas, Lord, that today would be the day that they stop pretending and that they get right with you, and they make this thing real. Lord, it is your desire, I know. And Lord, if there are any here who have just been like the disciples and have just been sleeping when we ought to have been praying, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us and give us a heart for you, a heart that desires to come to you, to commune with you, to pray to know your will, and to fulfill your will and the strength your spirit provides. Lead and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.